Diversity in Action podcast presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Emlyn Miles Mattingly and Louise Rosa interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you're tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn about what's really being done to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is brought to you by LLIS. As an extension of fee-only financial advisor firms, LLIS works with advisors and their clients to find the right solutions for life, disability, long-term care insurance, annuities, and more. Licensed in all 50 states, their experienced team is here to assist advisors and clients through the life of the policy. For more information, please visit LLIS.com. Welcome back to the Diversity in Action podcast. I am your co-host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly with Larissa Rosa. And we want to welcome you back and thank you for coming on this journey with us as we've been dropping a few episodes with industry leaders talking about diversity in action. We are excited to have this next guest on. I think both of us have had her on our show personally, and now she's going to come and share some more of her wealth of knowledge. Someone I've looked up to for a long time and just always just love, 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 love being able to have some time with her. I'm going to let Luis introduce her, but yes, I can't wait. Thank you, Amlon. Yeah, likewise here. I mean, I can't even read the bio because we'll be here for like probably two hours or so. But I'm going to give you some of the snippets, right? U.S. Navy veteran, financial coach, educator, consultant, nationally recognized as an expert in the field of financial coaching. She does a lot of work with community-based organizations that focus on asset building for the working poor. She's also the founder and executive director of Sage Financial Solutions, a San Francisco Bay Area-based organization that develops comprehensive financial capability programs for low and moderate income communities throughout the United States. She focuses on money and mindfulness and is a Search Inside Yourself certified teacher. She has received numerous awards in the industry. She's a financial behavioral specialist. She is current board member of the Financial Therapy Association. And as a member of the Financial Planning Association Diversity and Pro Bono Committee, she has served to shape a more inclusive profession. She's also a certified mindfulness teacher, which we're going to talk about. Uh, she does work with financial planners in that area. She's a distinguished adjunct professor in the Personal Financial Planning Program. And I met her initially in the Financial Planning Association Next Gen Gathering in 2019. She was one of the hosts. And I was just blown away by not only her knowledge, but her passion. I mean, it just shines through. And then I saw her during the breakout sessions, doing work with people on the side. And I was just blown away. And even before we got to this recording today, she was just already dropping the nuggets, even during us just getting prepped for audio and sound. You know, so I was just like, wow, this is going to be fire. So without further ado, Ms. Sandra Davis, welcome. Thank you so much. I cannot even tell you how proud I am to be hanging out with the two of you. This just makes my heart leap. Awesome. Thank you so much. We're very excited. Like Emily said, we've been fans from afar for a very long time, and we really appreciate everything that you do. And yeah, looking forward to just learning more about some of the things you're working on now, like the uh, Certified Mindfulness teacher. Yeah, so let's get into it. But before we go into all the stuff you're currently doing, tell us just a bit about your background and how you got into the industry. I believe you were a career changer yourself. I was. I was 44 years old when I first heard the word financial planner. And now I is one, right? And so, <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't know what it was. I had made every financial mistake possible, some of them twice. 
I'd worked in the community-based world for 30 years after leaving the military. And I just could see that even just in my own life and in my family's life, all the people I know and all the people I worked with, and I wasn't a direct service provider, I was a development director. And what they do is make the money so that the people who do the services can do the services, right? So I was always very comfortable around money, the idea of money, asking for money, all of that. But what I noticed was that the organizations would have like this revolving door, like people would come in, they'd get help, things would be great. And then they would go out and either lose the home if we helped them get a home, if they did get a job or start a business, there was just kind of this perpetual financial distress. And so when I closed my company, I had another consulting firm before this, I didn't know what I was going to do. I took a year off, made jewelry. Once I figured out I wouldn't go be able to make a living at that, my partner said, become a financial planner. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> okay, so, so I went to a bookstore and there was a book that said, if you hire a financial planner, hire a CFP or better yet, someone with a master's degree in financial planning. So I got a master's degree in financial planning. And the main point was first, that I wanted to be better with money for myself, for my family, because I was making good money. I just wasn't keeping it. So myself, my family, and then Black folks. I just really wanted to work in the Black community and help Black people understand what wealthy people understand about money and more importantly, the transfer of wealth. So in 2004 is when I did all of this. And back then, there was no research on the racial wealth gap. Right. There was no, there was no, there was, there was no, let's make sure that we get black folks into the profession. Black folks were in insurance sales. Yep. We were in some banking, not even a lot of banking. Or if we were in banking, it wasn't the wealth management part. And I will say this I know that there were more of us black and brown folks than I realized, but there wasn't the intentional focus that we see today. And so back then, the reason I started Sage was to be a small business financial planning incubator so that the people that I did know who were in communities of color also wanted to serve communities of color. But they were told the same thing that I was told. Oh, you'll never make a living doing that. You're going to have to go to a firm, make your money, then do pro bono work to serve your own community. And I was like, yeah, no, I can't do that. I'm too old for that. And so I started the incubator with the idea that if financial planners who were coming into the field needed to get their three years, right? They could do those three years doing no or low cost services for low income communities. And the CFP board is actually the only one that funded it. Everybody else was like, well, why should we pay financial planners? They didn't want me to pay the planners. They wanted them to be doing this as volunteers. And my thing was, look, these are young folks joining the profession in communities of color. They got to make a living, you know? And so I wanted to pay the planners. And at that time, in 2004, I wanted to pay the planners 50000 a year that would do full-time work. And the incubator would be structured in the way that, I mean, of course, there was no we work. There were none of those office spaces back then. But it was that. That's what I wanted them to have. They come in, office spaces set up, come in, got your computer, everything in there from toilet paper to printers, right? They didn't have to do anything but serve people. And I figured that what that would do would be build the professional opportunities for people who couldn't find their place in the workplace. I was older, Black woman. I was 44 when I did this. Black woman, Navy veteran, kind of set in my ways already. I wasn't a good fit for most of the financial planning firms in the Bay Area or anywhere in the country, frankly. 
So I knew that if it was going to be that hard for me, it was going to be super hard for people who were four shades darker and four C hair. And so I wanted to make sure that I was making a pathway for the people coming behind me. And that's really what started it. And I got a little bit of traction and then 2008 hit. The few people that were giving me money before that certainly weren't writing any checks. So I had to pivot. And that's what I did. I learned more about coaching and set up what I believe is the premier and what most people will say is the premier financial coach training program in the country. We require demonstration of the skills. You don't just get to sit. It's not a butts in the seat kind of certification. You learn the skills, you practice the skills, you demonstrate the skills. And now I've trained more than a thousand people easily and have a couple of major projects going on right now. So Sage is thriving. We're a small but mighty team, but the dedication is the same to make an inclusive, accepting, thriving community so that all people, irrespective of their income and wealth, have access to competent and ethical financial services. So that's... I love that. See, I told you she's a pioneer. What a concept, right? Who was thinking about that, right? In 2004, it's just amazing. One of the things that we've noticed a lot of the firms that participate in the BLX Synthesis program, that the compliments we've gotten about the career changers that came through the program, once firms were open enough to say, listen, you got to drop this whole three-year experience requirement because you're leaving so many people out that have transferable skills from other industries. You can teach them the tech. People can learn that, right? So that's amazing. Can you tell us a bit about the coaching program itself, some of the prerequisites, how long it is, how many modules and so on? Yeah. So the coaching program is really about who are you, right? That's where we start. Who are you? So that first module, we call that coaching foundations. And people spend two days with me or one of the trainers. Right now, I'm the lead trainer. We do have other trainers and mentor coaches. And so they spend that two days really kind of exploring what is coaching and how is it different from other interventions? And then what does it mean for me as a professional? What does it mean for me as a human? Is this the way I want to deliver services, right? For financial planners, the sweet spot is these skills help them navigate what can be the most difficult aspects of your work. And so those parts of what you all like to call non-compliant clients, right? This is what the coaching really helps do. So it's really about how do you co-design and co-develop your relationship, the plan, and even more importantly, the implementation of the plan. I started this because of a comment by a colleague who said we were at a financial planning conference and, you know, we probably were all about two to three drinks deep at the time. And y'all know, look, I ain't telling no tales out of school. Y'all know what happens at the conference. So, you know, we're hanging around and we're having a couple of drinks at the end of the day. And she says, yeah, I can't get my client to live within her $50,000 a month budget. So that silence that we just did, that's what I did. Right, exactly. That's what I said. And so, but I'll tell you what, at that moment, the light went off for me. It's not about the dollars. So what is it? And that's, okay, I think George Kinder was doing his thing. Dick Wagner was doing his thing, but it wasn't mainstream. There's like these little groups of financial planners who were focusing on life planning and those kinds of things, right? And so that I started to learn about coaching and that's how it came to be. So the coaching program as it is now, there's professional development, which is coaching foundation, just the basic skills. And then there's full certification. And that takes anywhere from six to seven months to a year. And that's ongoing practice. It's deepening the skills. It is modeled after the International Coach Federation 
core competencies. And we chose that because they kind of are the premier standard. How the CFP is a standard for financial planners, the ICF is a standard for coaches. And so that's why we aligned with that. But we do distinguish between financial coaching and like life coaching, career coaching. A lot of financial planners will just go and get coaching skills, but don't necessarily know how to connect them to the financial piece. One of the things financial planners get a little freaked out about is the idea of accountability and the client actually doing the things that they say. Because it's like, oh God, they'll fire me. Well, no, they really won't. They don't know that they want you to be their accountability partner. So whatever you set up with them at the beginning, if they're the right client for you, you all will be able to navigate it, right? And so that's really what the training is about. It is live. It is both synchronous and asynchronous. So some in a learning management system, but a lot of it is you're in a cohort and you're learning together, you're growing together, pushing up against all those uncomfortable moments, those places where we're growing, our growth edge. And yeah, it's a really enjoyable thing for me. I think one of the things that is striking to me that most people don't know, and actually I think this might be the first time I'm saying it on a podcast, the ICF was founded by a financial planner. Might call themselves coaches, but they're not really coaching. They're using the word coach, but they're really still directing. They're still deciding what the client, you know, so they're not really coaching. They're planning and calling it a sexier name. But Thomas Leonard, who is now deceased, he started the ICF and he started it because he realized that his financial planning clients needed more than money talk. And that was in 1990. He started the first coaching school. And so financial planners are sometimes reluctant to really use coaching, but that's because they don't understand it. Coaching exists as we know it, because of this dude that was a financial planner who was so far ahead of his time that he understood that most people, just the dollars and the cents are not enough for them to move. It's not enough for their behavior to change. It's not enough for them to define their legacy in a way that keeps them on track with the things that they say they want. So that's what I do. Yeah, that is so important, making a key distinction, because you're right accountability in the implementation aspect, it's going to be the most important thing because a perfect plan is just sitting there collecting dust. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good a job, quote unquote, you did in this plan and just give a printout to a client that don't do anything, then what good is it, right? So I think that's definitely missing a lot from our industry. And so I'm, I'm glad that you have this certification program out there. It's something that I'm definitely going to look into myself because I think that it's certainly a missing piece. As you develop long-term relationships with clients, you want to make sure that you are there for them not directing, like you said, necessarily, right? Like there's that piece because it's values-based too, right? Right. And I think it also causes professional planners to question their own worth when a client is not following the plan. I think planners can start to get burned out and frustrated and feel like, look, I'm doing this work and I'm feeling like I'm doing good work. And then when the client doesn't implement, it can cause the planner to feel like they're missing something. And sometimes it's just our technique, but also there's this acknowledgement and this recognition that we can't force anybody to do anything. Anybody that's ever raised a teenager understands that, right? We can invite them, we can show them the plan, we can show them all the right financial answers. But unless we tap into not only their values, but what inspires them to maintain motivation when they are discouraged, when they're afraid, when things don't go according to plan. And that's what coaching does, right? Coaching helps us remember our power when we feel powerless. That's both for the professional and for the client. So that's why I just chose this route. And once I chose it, I just kind of went all in. So what you all have done, the magic of what you all have done, you all, Dom Henderson, 
Dana Wilson, you all have everything that I wanted the incubator to be. Y'all got it. That's a dream that I had and a passion that I had that now there's a younger generation of black and brown folks and Asian folks and white folks who really care about inclusion, right? You all are doing it. So the grace for me, what makes me, when I said, I'm so proud to be here with you all, you're finishing what I started. You're moving it down the line in ways that I never got a chance to do. And so I'm sitting, I watch you all and I'm cheering you on from the sidelines because you're doing something that is so crucial. And as I said, when we started, before we started recording, you won't finish the work, but you surely are pushing the work forward. What you all have done with BLX, with the internship, is you've created little incubators all over the country, right? You created little incubators all over the country in a way that is more inclusive than even what I tried to do. Because I just tried to make a safe space for us. And what you all are doing is you're kicking in doors all over the country to make space in the space, right? So I hope you all see the magnitude and the importance of what you're doing. Because having an internship, I made it through Golden Gate with an internship and the internship did not exist. There was no internship program. I had to create it. I was sitting at an FPA meeting in San Francisco and there was a woman that I liked her philosophy. I went over to her and I said, hey, I want to work for you. And she said, I really can't hire anybody. I said, I'm, in, I'm a student. I'm at Golden Gate. I want to create a work study program and I need you to hire me. 20 bucks an hour, 20 hours a week, no benefits. And we did it. And so I created my own internship. So what you all are doing, the importance of this work, it is giving people who otherwise wouldn't have access and then wouldn't have a pathway. And so I just think it's so important that you don't forget that and that you're kind and gentle with yourselves as you push forward this new generation of what we're going to look like as a profession. When you speak, it really resonates with me because you mean what you say and you say what you mean. You're not going to hold it back with the insight and the things that you've created and just you, just your person. Just when you talk, we listen. It just makes sense. So we ask everybody about this. What does diversity mean to you and, and, and why is it important? And we said everything, the answers that you're getting, we haven't called it diversity. We haven't called, this is like, we're talking long before DEI, long before we had chief diversity officer. Remember that? Long before, <laughs> long before so we cute. had it. <laughs> long before that, right? Like long before that, before we talked about, like you said it yourself, before the papers were being written on the wealth gap or wealth divide or wealth chasm, as I call it, there were so many things that you were doing. So I just want to give you the floor on this and what diversity means to Sandra and why it's so important that we get this right. Yeah, I don't use the word diversity because you can have diversity without inclusion. You can be in a room and not be seen. You can be in a room and not be heard. You'll notice I won't say don't have a voice. We all have a voice. Doesn't mean it's heard. You'll never hear me say, I speak for people who don't have a voice. Everybody has a voice, right? It's whether or not the voice is heard and the voice is attended to. And so... I do use the word inclusion, but more aptly, to be honest, I use the word belonging. And I know that it's happening when I don't walk into a room and wonder if I belong, right? And I don't have to be black girl magic to belong. I don't have to be special. I don't have to be unique. I don't have to be, what's the word people like to use? Exotic, right? I can be me. I can be my full self and I belong. I don't have to be any better than anyone else. 
I don't have to be twice as good, right? That's what matters about it. I get to be myself. I don't have anything to prove any more than anyone else. That's when we've got inclusion. When people hear me and people see me and they don't think it's a compliment to tell me they don't see color. You know, I know people get a little confused when they see me because they don't know what box to put me in, but that's because I ain't got no box, right? I'm every woman, I'm all the things. And so that's what it means to me that as much as I love that we are appreciating in a more vocal way about black joy and black magic and brown power. And I don't know what we say for the Asian, but all of them, all of the ones we say, of course, I know the ones that's mine, right? But I don't know what they say for the Latinos or the Asian, but I will say this, when we know that we can be in those places and own our power without having to be magical, I think we will know we're there. And we are still a long, long way from that. You said something that hit home to me. It was about feeling like you need to be twice as good. I feel like sometimes I've spoken to other planners of color before, and we were talking about our relationships, even within our own community, right? Where it kind of feels that way, even to prove yourself that you're good enough. It's kind of crazy, but even on our own community, sometimes like you have to be like above and beyond, like, you know, Emily and I, we got investment news 40 under 40 and this, that, and the third. And you're like, you have to get all that just to kind of feel like, oh yeah, I'm just as good as them. You know, kind of like. And we have I, to remember though, we yeah. have to remember, you'll never hear me w hear the word supremacist because our supremacy, because it is not that, that's farce. We live in a construct that has set that up. So internalized racism is real. What we believe about ourselves based on what we were told about ourselves, how we were treated is real. So that moment, I remember growing up, and you all may have experienced this as well. I don't know as much about your generation and how you all process this, but I remember there was a time that something would happen on the news. We'd hear a story. Was, oh, God, don't let them be black. Don't let them be black. Right? Because we knew that if they were, it represented all of us. And that is unreasonable. There's no other group of people who go there. And we have to understand that that comes from a system that a lot of people would like to say, oh, well, the system's broken. I, I, I was about to say a potty word. Am I not allowed to say potty words? <laughs> hey, go for it. Okay. So that's bullshit. That's bullshit. The system is doing what it was designed to do. And so it is not broken. It is operating as designed. The problem is the system as it is, the construct as it is, was not designed for inclusiveness and belonging. And so if a Black person does something crazy, that has nothing to do with me, and I will not own that. To bring it into popular culture, what Will Smith did has nothing to do with Black men. Will Smith had a moment, and that was Will Smith's moment. It says nothing about any other Black man in this country or in this world. We are all individuals. We have a host of reasons that we do or do not do what we do or do not do. And so when we stop allowing things like that to define us, we now have the freedom to show up as who we are authentically and fully with our flaws and still know that we have something magical to contribute. And it doesn't have to be magic to be magical because our connection, just even looking at the two of you, the heart swelling that I feel, looking at the two of you, that's the magic. The connection is the magic. Not how well I perform or how well I speak. or None of that matters. When it's all said and done, 
what matters is the belonging and the connection that we have. I'm listening to you say that. And I think about the struggles that I had coming into the industry with professional confidence, um, because you got to have this designation and you got to be knowing it for this long and you have to do this and you got to do that. I remember when it happened, it was, geez, this is bad. This is how vivid it was. It was 2016. I remember this and I lost the client, client that I was competing for business with. And this person was a CFP and I hadn't had my CFP yet. And this person was a CFP and brought back the proposal that they had and they brought back the one that I had. And they said, Emma, you've done everything. It looks the exact same thing as what he put together, but he has this designation and you don't have this designation. And we're just going to go with that because we feel like he's going to be able to do this based on the designation. And what that did to my professional confidence at the time, it just really plummeted because I'm like, I thought I did everything that I needed to do to make sure that I could take care of this. And I think that what I was internalizing was <laughs> some of the stuff that you had talked about, right? Like, am I good enough? Can I do this? Is it going to work? Is this going to change things? And then as I begin to do it more, and the fun part about this is that I begin to work more with clients that I wanted to work with, not clients I needed to work with, clients I wanted to work with, people that look like me that could understand what I was going through. You know that that hadn't come up since then, since I changed my focus of who I was working with and who I was able to provide, who I was able to provide services for. And once that happened, I never looked back on my professional confidence again. I understood after that, we started the podcast. After that, we just started talking more. They said, all right, I just started doing more. And I think that you find that as we are in this industry and we look around and there's the representation is continuing to increase, it makes those times easier because now I can look back and I can say, hey, Luis, I can ask him stuff that he's gone through and I can ask other advisors of color that what they've gone through and hear their stories and hear how they've overcome it. And then it just makes it even more less challenging, if you will, for me, because I know that peers have overcome some of the things that I'm overcoming. And the best part about peers is having peers in the industry that yes. look like you, right? Like, they, yeah. like, yeah, I didn't have that luxury. Yeah. There, was, there, there was me, Louis Barajas. I didn't know about LeCount at the time because he's on the East Coast. There was me, Louis Barajas, and Frank Perret. And I hadn't met Frank yet. Frank and I were on a cover of Financial Advisor magazine together, I think in like 2006 or something like that, for pro bono work. Not for who we are in the profession, but for pro bono work, right? Louis was my first mentor. And so he was serving the same population. He was making a living because they told me, oh, you can't make a living doing a financial planning for poor people. But Lewis was the one that did that. So the thing I'll say, Emlyn, if I can have a coaching moment, do I have your permission to do that? So if I were coaching you in that moment, I would have invited you to ask that client or that potential client, what does that designation mean to you, right? Because if the plans were the same and the humans that had done the plans were like, on par, what did that designation mean to them? And I would say that even now, one of the reasons that I am such a stickler in my coaching program is that I remember the first time that I looked at the CFP board's disciplinary record and how many people that had stolen money from clients and they knew it, it was proven. And the CFP board at that time did not pull the designation. Now, I believe it's different. Now, I believe it's a much better record around discipline than there was. But for me, the reason I did not pursue the CFP at that point was I really wanted to focus on behavior. And that's just not what was happening in the CFP world. So I think that you all now are really pushing forward the profession. You're not just doing what's happening for your practice. You're not just doing what's happening for your peers you and your peers are pushing forward 
the profession. So I just really encourage you all to be really kind to yourselves when you're finding that there's so many things that you are being pulled to do that it'll be a cha-cha, some steps forward and some steps back. <laughs> you know? I like that. You know? Yeah. We've been chat-chatting for a little while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like two steps to the right. Oh, exactly. Two steps to the left. <laughs> that dip, baby, dip. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it feels like. That's what, that's, what, that's what it feels like. You get this going and two steps to the right and two steps to the left and we're dipping and I'm like, oh man, what happened to the business? And let's get back to that. Yeah, so I think hearing you say, that what we're doing is moving the profession forward is very encouraging, right? Largely in part just because you're a role model. You're someone that I look up to. I'm sure Luis feels the same way. And to hear you say we're pushing, because I don't think we've ever looked at it that way. It didn't hit me until you said it. It's like, this is the profession that's actually changed because of some of the stuff that we've been able to put together and follow in the footsteps of people like yourself and Luis Barras, who's at his episode will be coming out too. And I think looking back 20 years on the impact that you have made, and to have you say that we're making impact now means the world. Like honored and humbled that you would put us there and say that we're doing something and we really do appreciate that. I couldn't say that enough. And I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Louise. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I also feel that connection even through Zoom. Got a bigger heart for sure. And then speaking of moving the profession forward, can you tell us about the certified mindfulness teacher? Yeah, so this is so bizarre. I started a mindfulness practice in 1998. I started my practice by attending a seven-day silent retreat. Yeah, right? If you can imagine me shutting up for seven days, right? Well, the first thing that I went to was by Thich Nhat Hanh. We call him Tay. Tay means teacher. And it was in 96. And he came to a place called Spirit Rock that's here in San Francisco Bay Area. And I did a day-long retreat and then I just started doing meditation. It was very difficult for me, very difficult for me. My mind, what people call the monkey mind, was just all over the place. I would have a horrible time sitting. And I then went to the first people of color retreat at Spirit Rock. I do most of my healing either solely in black communities or with people of color. My spirit needs that safe space. So that's how I choose to do that. And I went there for seven days and we were silent and I did the teaching. So this is a Buddhist practice. I am not Buddhist. I don't claim any particular religion. But the meditation and the mindfulness that comes out of both African traditions of meditation and Buddhism, I have found to be very grounding for me. It has allowed me to be more compassionate with myself and more graceful with myself and my imperfections. And more accepting, the word is equanimity, when you accept what is, just accept what is. So we don't have that struggle of wishing things were different, grasping onto the good, trying to make sure it doesn't leave, which it always does, or avoiding the things we perceive as negative. And so that has just been my practice. And it, believe me, I say practice because I have to practice it every day. <laughs> and about three years ago, I learned about a program called Search Inside Yourself. And that was started at Google and it is a mindfulness training program. So I did that and I've been a certified teacher for three years now. And then I started to want to teach that was not their specific content because there are some things in their content that just don't work for me personally. And so now I'm in a program that wraps up actually really soon 
that's a mindfulness meditation teacher training program with some of the top leaders that are really super well, Jack Cornfield, Tara Brock, Conda Mason, uh, some of the teachers in the traditions. Now, again, the mindfulness piece is not about a religion. It is about how do you navigate your own self-awareness, your mind, your body, any sensation, so that at any given moment, you can come back to yourself. At any given moment, you can notice when your emotions are being pulled or your energy is being pulled or you're harming yourself or someone else. Now, that doesn't mean we're always equipped to do something about it. You can ask my man about that. When he came in, when we were talking earlier, I'm like, dude, right? But so I can take a moment and settle myself back down. And I find that so valuable for financial planners because I've said this before, but I want to say it here. The work of a financial planner is magical because while financial planners may not do everything, right? You may not do their taxes. You may not do their investments. You may not do their estate plans. You all have to think of everything. And so the pressure to get it right when you have someone's life that you're trying to help them navigate the ups and the downs, the the strengths and the weaknesses, the opportunities and the obstacles, the pressure on a financial planner is very challenging. And because it came out of a sales position, the general public doesn't understand really what y'all do, right? And so they don't understand what it would feel like for you to do a plan with a client and them not implement. And then something drastic that you had planned for happens, but the implementation didn't happen, right? I've seen situations where people forget after a divorce, they forget to change the beneficiary and then they die and their new spouse and children I mean, you all are not in your head because you know where I'm going. But people don't think about what that means for you as the professional who has tried to address that for a client. And so I have this deep empathy for financial planners because to me, it's no different than a physician, to be honest. Do no harm. What you do, you try to do what's best for that client's whole life in the context of their money and their resources. And so the mindfulness component can allow you to give yourselves more grace, to be more grounded, to be clearer about the right clients for you and when it's not working, and to have that empathy that we hear a lot of financial planners are talking about empathy now, but they're very seldom leaving out empathy for self. Yes, we want financial empathy for our clients, and that begins with empathy and self-compassion. We cannot give something to others that we don't have for ourselves. Wow. That is deep. <laughs> Are you planning to tie that in in some of the work that you do? I am. I am. So Creating so a whole new industry, right? <laughs> it's a whole new thing. But my focus, I don't do direct client services anymore. I do some executive coaching. So I coach some high-ranking civil servants, a couple of Navy admirals here and there, and financial professionals who run their own firms. So I do executive coaching for that. But what I am doing is offering mindfulness sessions for CFPs, for all financial professionals, whether anywhere along what you all know that I call the financial health continuum, education, counseling, coaching, planning, and therapy. So anyone who's in any of those areas, I have uh, mindfulness classes and I post them on LinkedIn so people can follow and find out about those things there. I actually have one coming up in August 26th and I'm actually doing that one as a day law, so people can take that day of learning some of the practices. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I like that how you say it has to begin with yourself first. You can't give something you don't have, right? I love it. Or if you do, there will be that part of you that feels inauthentic. Mm, True. And I think that that leads to some of the imposter syndrome that people can feel sometimes. And so we can bridge that gap. And I think Emily said it perfectly when he talked about from that moment of that realization with that particular client going forward, I heard, and Emily, rescue me if I'm wrong, I heard you recognized your worth as well as the areas that you felt insecure or lack of confidence. And you also realized who your real clients were. And once you did that, once you joined your true authentic self, you haven't looked back on that topic, right? Absolutely. Just to give you some more, after that, I started Gen Next Wealth and decided that my clients were who they were and built a whole business around (laughs) that experience. So not only did it give me the confidence to do it, the direction, and then I really just feel like I found my tribe and then the tribe just continues to grow. And that is belonging. So full circle back to what you asked me about diversity, that is belonging because you never have to question if you belong there and they don't have to question if they belong with you. Yeah, that's an amazing place to be in. And that's what we're striving for. (laughs) Yeah. And the rub is often we wonder if the people we want to serve have the financial uh, resources for you to be able to make a living and do well for them. And that can be difficult. So we've got a lot of work to do. I say all the time, everything affects everything, right? And so their ability to make a living for themselves impacts their ability to hire you and for you to make a living for yourself and then your ability to continue to serve the people you want to serve. So either we belong or we pretend we don't. That's fire right there. See, Emily, we need the mic drop sounds. Yeah, we have to get get some sounds like that's it because it's such a powerful word that you're giving us. And honestly, we're going to wrap it up. <laughs> like, 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 we're going to wrap it up. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question. And I can't even think past what you've been saying. Like, oh, my mind just keeps going back to that. So as we're wrapping up here, Sandra, if people want to be, help make the profession more inclusive, more of a place where people can feel like they belong, create space for people to belong. If you can give some advice about that, what would it be? Yeah. So the beauty of that question is that it's the standard financial planning answer, right? It depends. It could be anything that responds to your soul. So I was focused on inclusion for people who were new to the profession, who were Black or other people of color, who wanted to serve people who looked like them. So that's what I cared about. I started a thing. The thing did not go where I intended. And it's no longer my work to do because now you all are doing it. So don't believe that you have to fix it. You can contribute. And that's, again, what is belonging. So you don't have to fix something. You can contribute what you have to offer. So if that means opening the door to an intern, or if that means volunteering with you all to help support where your organization is trying to go, or writing a check to your organization for where you all are trying to go. People can do it in many, many ways. And so I would say, if you don't want to do the work yourself, support those who are doing the work, right? Look, I don't save the whales. I'm glad there's people who save the whales. I don't save the whales. That's not my thing. I'm glad people saving the whales. But Sandra does what Sandra does. 
And so all of us get to do the thing that makes our heart beat fast. And so I would just say, continuing to test what belonging means. Does everybody have space? When we have a conference, do we make sure that people who might be hearing impaired or visually impaired or have physical accommodations that they may need, are we making sure that they have full access to everything that someone who might not have those same limitations? Do we make room for professionals who are more introverted and might need us to move a little more slowly in how we speak and make space for them to think before they speak? Or do we treat them as though they're not as quick? They're not type A. They're not going to be successful. So who are we leaving out? Whose voice is not in the room? Whose face is not in the room? Right? And so when we can do that and look around the room and look for it, is everyone here? What are we missing? Then I think we'll be making some real headwind. You all heard it here. This is powerful. Listen to this twice, okay? Go back and listen to this one twice. Yeah, okay? yeah, because you're going to miss something because you'll be thinking about the prior thing. <laughs> yeah, listen to this one twice. This is absolutely incredible. And this is what happens when you just listen. You can learn something. And what I wanted to say as we're wrapping up, first of all, just, Sandra, thank you for coming and hanging out with Luis and I and giving us of your time, energy, effort, insight, knowledge, power, and love. Like all of the stuff that you like, I feel all that today. And I hope the listeners feel that too. So kind, so considerate, and so powerful all at the same time. And what we want to do is just thank you again and thank all of our listeners as you guys have joined and you've just listened to an episode of Diversity in Action and you hear how important it is. I'm your co-host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, along with Luis Rosa. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. To learn more about the BLX Internship Program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.